0: A science story, huh?
1: Is NYU a scientist? Uh, I, it I felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just thought, well...
0: It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. This week's theme is validity, and both of our storytellers today are looking for validation of some kind, whether as a scientist or just as a human or both. Our first story is from Adrian DeMerit. It was recorded last December at a closed live stream show in Atlanta. The theme that night was clarity.
0: As a child, tinkering was, like, my specialty. Okay, I could take the top-of-the-line RC car from Toys R Us, a hammer, a screwdriver, and just a little bit of hope that I wouldn't break that one motor that I wanted from it and flawlessly waste $50. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting is that if you were a parent who had recently invested a lot of money in an expensive toy for your child's happiness, you would have probably gone ballistic at the fact that It didn't make it more than a week. If you were a preschool teacher like my godmother, you would have probably sent a child home who continuously dismantled toys and electronics to combine them into these like weird Frankenstein-like contraptions that you could have bought for just a few dollars. Not mine, though. Rather than discipline me, my dad and my godmother, they they let me lose myself in, in my scientific curiosity. And interestingly enough, that, that impacted me for my entire life. It ultimately led me to science, which led me to chemistry, and I desperately wanted to make them proud. Nothing quite reassured my ability to change the world, like going to college and receiving a whopping 35% on my first, you know, chemistry quiz. And and rather than let that deter me, I, I actually opted to master it. That led me to mentoring 12 underrepresented students in science and then I squeezed my way into a research lab and then, for some reason, fueled by this weird desire to establish myself in the chemical field I applied to grad school. Grad school was exactly what I thought it would be. You come in, you set up a reaction in five different conditions, you do it for a different step or substrate, you you cross all those conditions off because literally none of them worked anyway, and then you just repeat. That, that monotony was broken up by some pleasant calls from my, from my, from my mentees uh, that I mentioned before. And, and that was kind of nice, but sometimes there were these calls that, that, that weren't so nice. My mom would call me and tell me that my dad wasn't doing so well. Um, she'd tell me that I'd have to drive 10 hours to go be with him for his next chemotherapy session, and she'd tell me that my godmother wasn't doing so well either. And then one day, she called me and she told me That I needed to come home. So much, so much had happened in such a short period of time. One day I was here in Atlanta, trying and failing to get a moisture sensitive reaction to work, you know, with the humid Atlanta weather. And the next day I was home in in the Bahamas, burying the person that quite literally shaped my foundation in, in, in terms of science and knowledge. In my entire life I I I've, I've only seen my dad cry twice. Once was was seeing his sister who'd been there for his entire life go on to leave this mortal plane without him and and the second time was when I stood next to his bedside just a sh- just a few short weeks later and and I, I I told him that I would continue to make him proud just before he went on to join her. Life in the Caribbean's a little weird. Uh, that's especially if, in you know, you're in the Bahamas, and and the reason for that essentially is because if you want to do something, you have to put in a tremendous amount of effort to effectuate whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, and that includes being present or calling several times. So immediately, I was called to not only be present in many different places but I was forced to be this person that had all the answers to all these random questions. I had to step up into these shoes that I wasn't quite ready to fill. And then the calls came. Hello? Adrian? Demerit, right? Well, I'm I'm calling regarding some upcoming payments for a 2018 Nissan Titan XD. Could you, Adrian? Demerit, right? Perfect. Uh, I'm calling from Family Guardian Life. Could you come down tomorrow to, Adrian, hey, uh, could you, Come to the firm tomorrow so we could discuss writing over, Hey, Adrian, we still have to talk about where this is going to happen and and what we're going to do and what colors we need. We're, 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 we're going to meet at your house tomorrow, right? Make sure that you have enough space and seats and food for 35 people. 37. Within a week, I had made 37 calls and trips, all to return home to, to a mother that was crushed under losing... Her, her husband, and, 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 and not only that, but, but looking at my sister who was grieving over the loss of her best friend and, and her father. I was broken too, I, I, I really was broken too, but I, but I couldn't allow myself to be too broken. I was still highly functioning. I mean, in three weeks, I was able to handle, handle post-financial logistics and, and, and set up everything for the funeral and be this emotional rock and level-headed leader that I thought that my family needed at the time. I cried, but, but I could only cry so much. I grieved, but I only grieved when it was convenient because I thought if I could handle it all, that meant that I was okay because I felt like I didn't have any other choice. Besides, you know, during that whole time, I was able to work on grants and work on assignments that I was missing and grade all these papers from the lab section that I so abruptly left. I had to be okay, because I was this model brother. I was this model son, cousin, friend. I needed to be there for everybody. So three weeks, it didn't matter if I had to come home work on all these things, go to bed at 5 a.m., wake up at 7 a.m., and start the cycle all over again three weeks. That's how long I gave myself to go home, prop my family up, handle everything that I needed to, and head back to grad school to make sure that I did, you know, make them proud. Back home, people didn't really respond to that super well. People were saying... So soon, I thought he would give himself a little bit more time. And here, my friends would respond as if they were walking on eggshells and they would look at me and they would say, you're, you're, you're not quite the same. More quiet and, and more in my head. I, 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 of course I was. I was using all my energy to, to make myself want to be somewhere. And of course I was. Right? The, the one person that I wanted so desperately to be proud of me was gone, and and one of the people who quite literally shaped my scientific inquiry had, had went on to inspire others metaphysically, it was gone. There was a huge fissure in my foundation for wanting to do science. So Taylor, a former mentee, ended up calling me up and she said, you know, come down to where I am, spend Thanksgiving with me and my husband. And she wanted to do that to to take me away from everything that she thought was distracting me, everything that was making me feel like I was okay. And when I went there without grants, without family that I felt like I needed to take care of, I steeped myself in the emotions from the months prior. I thought about whether or not I, I, I really wanted to go back to graduate school. I thought about whether or not the reasons that I wanted to do science were good enough anymore, but I, I still didn't cry. She came to me and she said, hey, you know, I, I think it would be a good idea if we actually went to the nearby mall and did some people watching. And there was something that was, well, well, well there was something that was, that was actually kind of nice about it, right? Seeing little kids run around putting up their contenders for best-smelling soap at Bath & Body Works is, is kind of comforting, right? I, I could almost experience the joy of all these jubilant shoppers darting from store to store, carrying whatever deals that their arms could muster, knowing that they would make, you know, a, a son or a daughter or a relative extremely proud. So we sat, and we smiled, and we choked, and we stared for hours. We got up to leave and, 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 and we noticed that there was a, a fight starting to break out at a, at a nearby pack Sun. So we, we turned our backs to the mounting tension and we were headed towards the, the, the exit that was outside of the food court. When suddenly the, the gentle hum of those jubilant shoppers was, was cut short by, by, by a four word sentence. He has a gun. Hundreds of people started to run in every single direction and that gentle hum was erased by the stampede that screamed, get out as soon as possible. Taylor grabbed my arm and she threw me behind a trash can and she said, shh, don't don't worry, I got you. As that individual ran past us, she threw her body over mine to make sure that I was safe, and I sat there and I wondered why. Why would this person that I mentored for only a couple years in college literally risk her life for me? But she knew I wasn't capable of responding in that situation. She knew I wasn't mentally there. She knew that I thought that it was par for the course at that point in time and, and, and you know, whatever happened just was going to happen. She knew, Taylor knew I wasn't okay. The police ended up showing up pretty quickly and they apprehended the individual and, and there were no casualties. So, so we, we, we walked back to the car and we sat for a long time in just silence. And then Taylor turned to me and she said, in a joking manner, Probably shouldn't, shouldn't go to malls for a while, right? And immediately I started to cry profusely. There were no grants. There were no papers. There were no assignments. There was no family members that I feel like I had to be okay for. I let every single iota of emotion just pour from me. And Taylor did not even have to ask why I was crying but it was for so much more than she possibly could have known i was crying for every single instance that i didn't in the months before i was crying to mourn those i so desperately wanted to be proud of me i was crying because i my my reasons for doing science were all wrong i cried because there's there's validity there's validity in existing in the moment in itself, those tears were because I didn't realize how much I impacted others. And I didn't realize how much impacting others in science meant to me. And I don't mean science. I'm I'm talking to a lot of scientific people right now, so let me be clear. I don't mean science for papers. I don't mean science for reactions or notoriety or grants or glory. I was crying because I was doing what I wanted to do, what I should have been doing all along, impacting others just like how my dad and my godmother impacted me. Thank you.
2: Adrian Demerit. Adrian is a fourth-year PhD graduate student at Emory University from Nassau, Bahamas. His research focuses on combating fungal and antibiotic resistance, and he hopes to continue his work to help bolster the chemical industry in the Caribbean one day. In his free time, he enjoys riding, hiking, and experiencing whatever hidden gems Atlanta's melting pot of cultures has to offer. Before we continue today, just a few updates from Story Collider. Due to Omicron, we aren't scheduling any in-person shows until it's warm enough for us to hold them in outdoor spaces, but we do have a few online shows coming up in the winter months. Coming up on February 8th, we'll be live streaming from St. Louis in partnership with St. Louis Public Radio, and just a day later on February 9th, we'll be live streaming stories from New York City. I will be co-hosting with our brand new producer Tracy Cigara, so I would love to see you there virtually. Find out more at storycliderorg slash shows. We'll also be holding our Winter Story Slam on February 18th if you'd like to tune in and possibly put your own name in the hat for a chance to be invited on screen to share your story. Tickets for our slams are $10 and we often send out discount codes to our newsletter subscribers. Again, find out more at storyclider.org. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storycollider.org slash donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We are also for the first time ever selling merch on our website, so if you would like to buy a Story Glider hoodie, t-shirt, tote bag, you can find those at storyglider.org/store. Your purchases help to support Story Collider's work. We're so grateful to everyone who helps to make this podcast possible. Our second story is from Becky Feldman. It was recorded last November at a closed live stream show in Los Angeles. The theme that night was difficult decisions.
1: So um throughout my adult life um I have struggled with a condition called vulvodynia. Which is, um, basically a form of, um, chronic pelvic pain. Um, so, uh, sexually, while I could always, um, feel pleasure and have an orgasm clitorally, um, intercourse itself was excruciatingly painful. It was this stabbing pain that felt hot and cold at the same time. Like, I only describe, like, uh, I- I It felt like I was being fucked by a barbed wire bat. Like, that's what sex felt like to me. And I know some people are into that. So it's, I'm not saying there's, like, anything, <laughs> like, <laughs> to have sex with a bar. I'm just saying that I don't like that. That type of pain for me is, is unbearable. Um, so at the end of college, when um, I would be, you know, I started to have sex and um, when I would be having sex with someone I would be in pain so I would be like wincing and I think like the look on my face it looked like I was like eating something gross but not spitting it out (laughs) and like who doesn't want to have sex with someone who's like grimacing like in disgust. (laughs) Um, so we would stop and it would be so awkward and embarrassing and uncomfortable and I would always apologize a thousand times and I would always be like, um, I think this is happening because of a medication that I take. Um, anyway, isn't the movie Garden State amazing? (laughs) Um, and so I did go to, you know, various doctors, various OBGYNs and, um, they weren't helpful. Uh, a lot of them just um, brushed me off. They wouldn't even examine the area. They would just say, oh, you're anxious. You just need to relax or just have a glass of wine before sex. Or I even had one doctor tell me to date someone with a small penis. <laughs> so like, that was a do- that was a doctor's advice. <laughs> um, and uh, emotionally, you know, it just it wrecked me. I felt like my body was broken and I felt frigid and, it, it, and just sad. So um, in my early 20s, I gave up. Uh, I stopped dating, stopped being intimate with people, and I was just like, well, I guess I'll be a sad, lonely cat lady who is even sadder because I don't even have a cat. Um, my building doesn't allow pets. Um, but um, after I had turned 30 um, a few years later, um, I was getting into bed one night and um, I sleep on the left side of a full size bed and I noticed the right side of my bed. And I was just like, oh, my God, like no one has ever been on that side of the bed like a man's head has never lain <laughs> upon those pillows. And I was just like, am I really going to you know, spend the rest of my life this way? Um, So I started seeing all of these different specialists that help with female sexual dysfunction. And um, as I was doing that, um, emotionally, um, I was starting to kind of panic. One, because I'm just like, I'm a neurotic person. But also... um, It had been so long since I had been, like, intimate with someone. Um, And I was like, oh, God, do I remember what to do? Like, does my body remember what to do? Like, do I even remember how to kiss? And then I, I started thinking, you know, I wish I could just get that first hookup out of the way where I didn't feel any pressure to, like, please another person. I could just, like, focus on myself. So I decided as part of my medical treatment to book a night at the Sheraton in Pasadena, and hire a high-class male escort for two hours. Um, so, in the days leading up to the encounter, I was like, I was like freaking out about everything. I'm like, what do I wear? And like, do I eat before or do I eat after? And I was like, googling like, what's the best chapstick for kissing? And. Um, <laughs> One thing I was freaking out about was paying the escort, because you do have to pay in all cash, but I was like, oh my god, it's a high-class escort. Like, how do high-class people pay escorts? Like, do they just, like, hand them a brick of cash? Um, So I decided that the classy thing for me to do was to put all of the money in a thank you card. (laughs) So I found a thank you card that had a phrase on it that I thought could (laughs) encompass, you know, his, his services. It said, Thank you for your awesomeness. <laughs> um, so the, the night of the encounter, um, I meet my escort at the bar in the Sheraton. And this guy, like, he's a man. He's a beautiful man. He is a very attractive, fit, sexy man. Um, you know, he had che- cheekbones, brown hair. He's wearing, like, dress clothes. Like, he kind of looks like, he looked like the high-class male escort version of, like, Clark Kent who left his glasses at home. And um, so we're, we're sitting and, and you know, we, we talk at the bar and I'm so, so, so nervous. And um, we have our usual small talk, you know, that you usually have in Los Angeles where, you know, you talk to someone and they're like, they always, you know, want to be an actor but have a lot of side hustles. And that was that was this escort. And uh, we make our way to, to my hotel room, you know, we're just continuing with this small talk and I am even more nervous. And as we're talking, I was thinking like, okay, when's like the kissing and the stuff going to happen? And then I realized, oh, he's waiting for me to be the one to initiate this. So I awkwardly whisper, I want you to kiss me now and he smiles so seductively and we start going at it and it's delightful, it's amazing. Like my body remembers what to do right away, I remember how to kiss, it's awesome. Um, He he offers to go down on me and I say, great, but uh, there's one thing you should know. Um, So during the times that I did have painful sex, I still managed to get um, HPV and it's the high-risk kind that can cause cervical cancer. And so I tell him this. And, and then I kind of misspeak. And I was like, yeah, and I guess I just don't want you to get cervical cancer in your mouth. <laughs> and then he gets kind of confused and was just like, well, I don't have a cervix in my mouth. <laughs> and then I don't know what came over me. But then I just blurted out, not yet you do. <laughs> And, like, honestly, I'm thankful to this day. He thought it was funny. (laughs) Um, So um, before the occasion, I had researched dental dams, and I ordered these mint-flavored dental dams off of Amazon, and I swear to God, I think we used it upside down because for, like, two weeks afterward, it felt like my vagina was sucking on an altoid. (laughs) So um, after I have two orgasms in the course of at most a minute and a half, um, um... It it, it felt like I was in, like, a different reality. You know, I, I, I didn't feel like a sad, lonely, catless cat lady. I felt like a normal woman with a working body, and I was just elated. So when he asked me if I wanted to have sex, I hesitated because I wanted to so bad. But this voice in the back of my head was just like, Becky, if you try, you are going to ruin this night. So I tell him that I can't and instead of blaming it on non-existent medication, um, I tell him the truth. I tell him that I have this chronic pelvic pain disorder. Um, And then he gets this very inquisitive look on his face and he grabs his phone and he was like, how do you spell it? And I see that he is looking it up on a physiotherapy database and he starts giving me all of these suggestions on how to manage the pain because as it turns out, he has another side hustle and that is being a physical therapy assistant. <laughs> and you know, when I think about that night, like that's usually the moment that, I'm, that I think about, you know, it's just this image of this, this escort sitting on the bed looking at his phone biceps bulging um, as he's trying to educate himself about female sexual dysfunction. And you know, out of all of the partners that I've had and out of all of the doctors that I've been to, it was the escort. It was this two hour long fake boyfriend who was the one who finally like validated my pain. And because I had that validation, like the next month I started dating again. Um, So at the end of the night, I handed the escort, you know, his thank you card. And um, I'm sure uh, when he talks shop with his peers, he's probably like one time a little weirdo gave me a thank you card. But you know what? He deserved it. So thank you for your awesomeness.
2: is becky feldman becky is a writer performer and podcast host originally from new jersey she's an alum of the ucb theater and ruby la in addition to being a staff writer on children's animated shows her tv appearances include community broad city and brooklyn 99 this story is an excerpt from her solo storytelling show tight sexy stories about pelvic pain which debuted in january 2020 the Story Collider is so grateful to Adrian and Becky for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, Program Manager, Misha Gajewski, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikesha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Mesa Salida and Kelly Vinyl. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Mesa Salida and Kelly Vinyl, and by Brian Kett and Leslie Burnson, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with stories from the amazing Latasha Wright and Leah Clyburn on the topic of representation in STEM. Until then, thanks for listening.